In a world where fake news spreads like wildfire, truth has become increasingly fluid and elusive. From social media echo chambers to algorithms, how does the internet shape the information we receive? In this episode of the DWF podcast, Madison Connaughton, Madeline Heyman-Reber and Sammy Shah explore the role of the journalist on the digital frontier. Um, hi everyone, thanks so much for coming today. Um, first, I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land which we meet, the Wurundjeri people and the Boon people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, pre present and emerging. Um, my name is Madison Connaughton and I'm the editor of the Saturday paper and I'm so, so pleased to be joined today on stage by two very smart, very funny, very talented people. Um, Madeline Heyman-Reva is a Gomorrah woman and platform journalist at the National Indigenous Television. Her passion lies in social justice and First Nations Australians through storytelling. Most notably last year, she worked with freelance journalist Sylvia Rowley to expose the criminal records given to stolen generation elders simply for being taken. It resulted in the records being expunged in the state of Victoria. For this work, they received a Human Rights Award in the media category, as well as Best News or Current Affairs Story at the First Nations Media Awards. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sammy Shah, who has cut his biography back significantly because he did not want me to read this very long and impressive <laughs> bio, um, has been profiled by the New York Times and appeared on BBC Radio 4. His autobiography, I, Migrant, has been nominated at the New South Wales and Western Australian Premier's Literary Awards. His novel, Boy of Fire and Earth, was re released in 2017. He is also a co-presenter of 774 ABC Breakfast Radio. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so today we've been asked to talk about the future of truth, um, which I think is a very um, popular topic at the moment um, that everyone seems incredibly concerned about in the era of fake news. But I think I'm curious what both of you have as a working definition of fake news. What do you think that it is? How do you define it in your work, I guess, as a journalist um, and as, mm. a, as a presenter and a comedian? Um, maybe Sammy. Um, I mean, the birth of the, the phrase fake news, that title kind of came around. It's a very Trumpian thing. It, it resulted, uh, it, you know, it caused, um, the, the story behind that is basically Donald Trump almost coined it in, in an own way. If he didn't coin it, he certainly popularized it. And, the, and thus, the meaning of it is indelibly tied into his own um, persona. The idea being that fake news is um, news that does not uh, flatter or represent uh, certain political figures in a positive light. Um, that's what gets qualified as fake news, particularly if you're in America, um, that's very much where it comes from. In Australia, we've co-opted and kind of made it our own thing, um, which is a great criticism to level against any news that doesn't conform to your own political ideology. So if, for example, you believe in uh, climate change, then and someone runs a story on um, Sky News saying climate change is, is not real, you can call that fake news. But if you don't believe in climate change, and someone at the ABC runs a story that climate change is real, 
uh, you can call that fake news. And it all, all kind of breaks down along those party lines, mm -hmm. almost. Yes. It's become like a very partisan term. It is. It's, very it's got very little to do with the actual credibility of the news, of journalism, or the, or the history of journalism, or the way journalism is going in the future, and more to do with just, I'm left, you're right, and this is something I can use to attack your sources of information mm -hmm. so that they don't con contradict my sources of information. Maddie, do you think that it's similar for you? Yeah, so I think in terms of fake news, um, what Sammy, what you were saying, sort of with having the left and right view, sometimes it's not necessarily fake, but it's just a one-sided opinion, um, and then that can be, that, like, politicians use it all the time to say to each other, that's fake news, that's wrong, mm -hmm. but it's actually just telling one side of the story. I think a lot of news outlets are guilty of that as well, um, yeah. Do you think that in in your work, I think we were speaking earlier this week about the, the journalism you do and um, that you're often speaking to people who are potentially, there's someone in a position of power such as the police and there's someone that is in a position of relatively less power. And do you feel like that the, the sort of trust that is afforded to powerful organisations makes it tricky for for people to tell their stories? Yeah, I do. I think that um, that's sort of where NITV can sort of, well, we sort of make a difference that way. The community trusts us. There's a lot of distrust in the community for um, journalists in general, mainstream journalists and me mainstream media organisations. Um, so when they do come to us with a story, um, we they know that, that we're going to tell their, like, we're going to give them the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Um, as well as taking in the, like, into account the facts from the police or from whoever else. Um, and oftentimes you see media outlets only take, they don't go out into the community, they don't get people's opinions, they don't, or the people don't want to talk to them because they know what light they're going to be shown in. So, um, yeah. Hmm. And being able to, in, like, to build that trust within a community to be able to tell their stories is such a huge issue, I think, for journalism generally. Yeah, I think it's because a lot of journalists don't really understand understand people in the community. They don't understand Aboriginal communities. They don't know how to approach people in Aboriginal communities um, or they're scared that they're going to say the wrong thing. Um, so they just don't make the effort to as well. Um, and that also creates... It just turns into a big spiral of distrust for, on both sides. Um, I think on that idea of trust, like, there's a sort of sense that in the last five years or ten years or so that social media has completely undermined the public's trust mm -hmm. in media or in institutions or experts. It's kind of um, very much blamed or attributed to social media. Do you think that that is true? Do you think that it's a very recent phenomenon or do you think that this is a longer issue that we've kind of just started talking about in more specific ways in the past few years? Um, I think, yeah, there, there, there's definitely been an increase in distrust of um, major news outlets. So BBC, CNN, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, The Australian, all of these sky news, everyone, they've all got a trust deficit now. And that's largely to do with social media and the way kind of stories propagate there and everything. But I think that's a good thing. I know that right now the news outlets are very worried about that. And I know right now, as a society, we're grappling with the idea that the Facebook post your grandmother shared from um, nanasareright.com.au that says vaccines can be cured by lettuce is, is worrying because your nana now believes that. But at the same time, 
there's other other things that are happening as a result of you know the fragmentation of news channels. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, it used to be that the New York Times said that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction because the B because the Bush government said that, and we all had to believe them because they were the venerable New York Times. It used to be that the BBC said uh, Brexit will fail, and we believe them because of the BBC, and, and now. You know, or, or the ABC said that the Liberal Party will not win the next election. Like, there's all these major outlets which are kind of having to rethink their credibility mm -hmm. and their approach to journalism. But in the meantime, while that's happening, you're seeing the birth of a whole lot of new things. So yes, on one side, you've got those crazy right-wing Breitbart, you know, anti-vaxxer kind of nutjob websites. But on the other side, you've also got things like Vice. You've got things like um, BuzzFeed, uh, which have the editorial problems, but to pretend like that's not all news doesn't have that is, is a lie. Uh, but also you're seeing indigenous communities coming out with their own news sources, mm -hmm. coming out with their own websites that pr present their stories their way. You're seeing mi minority groups uh, in different parts of the world, LGBTQI, etc., who are all saying, you know what, we're tired of our stories being told badly mm -hmm. by the major news organizations that pretend like they're unbiased but have their own inherent biases. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead, let's do it ourselves. And they're kind of doing it well. So yes, there is the, the label of fake news has been applied to a lot of the major news outlets uh, with the rise of social media has damaged the credibility of the major news outlets. But I think that's okay. They kind of need to cop some of that abuse. They've, they've let down people several times in the mm -hmm. past and have gotten away with it because they were the only source of news. Sure. Yeah, they need to be held to account for the things that they spread because they have an influence over the whole country or the whole exactly, world. Yeah. So um, I think that those little sites are really important, even if some of it is fake news or if it's not completely true or it's one side of the story, it's still important to give another perspective and for people to think, I guess, and know that like not just <laughs> not just the Australian is correct or not mm -hmm. just the Sydney Morning Herald is correct. Like there's a whole spectrum of ideas. And if you want to become a journalist and you're not from one of you know, the major universities are of a certain skin color or so certain socioeconomic background or certain political bent. The only way you can kind of get that pathway then is by joining one of these websites, setting something up yourself. Um, and then, you know, if you do it well enough, regularly enough, one of these might pick you up and give you a big paycheck or by yeah. that point they would have collapsed because their budgets have been cut and mm -hmm. your website might end up bringing in more mm -hmm. advertising revenue anyway. But there's new pathways opening up to journalism which... Um, and to you know, being a voice for certain communities, etc., which uh, didn't exist, I think, even five to seven years ago. So it's a scary time right now if you're a news editor or if you're even a reporter in, in you know, many places, but that's good, mm -hmm. I think, because in, in 10 years' time, we'll see a new industry kind of solidifying or you know, forming itself more coherently, and, and we could get something exciting out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in the structure of the media at the moment, those sites are doing a really good job at getting stories onto the news agenda mm -hmm. because yeah. journalists at major news organisations have, I mean, constantly talk about how few resources and time they have to do stories. There's a lot of legwork being done by these sites that are then picked up by more national news organisations, and which I think is a very good thing, but obviously there are examples where the work is getting a raise that is mm -hmm. done by these journalists at sort of smaller smaller sites um, once a story is picked up and sort of put onto the national Yeah, agenda. there's actually um, an example of this happening recently with the Aboriginal flag. Um, 
so I forget his name, sorry, but there's a there's someone that works at the uh, the Cree Mail, and he was actually the one that had the exclusive mm -hmm. on the story about the Aboriginal flag, um, being the copy the some of the rights, the intellectual rights, yeah, the in, like the intellectual rights for the flag to be used on clothing was given to this company called um, Wham Clothing, and he had actually written this story. It had been published in the Courier Mail. And then all of these other news outlets picked it up, but none of them, there was hardly anyone credited him. So we actually republished his story on our site. Um, that's just one of the ways, I guess, that, um, I mean, the Korean Mail, it's been around forever and everyone knows it and loves it and trusts it. But um, in the sense of Indigenous journalism, sometimes our stories just get taken and <laughs> no one credits you or anything. Um, but in saying and that... Good chance of the, the white journalist who republished that story on, you know, the ABC or Sydney Morning Herald, one of these places, will end up getting a diversity award for writing <laughs> that story, even though it's not he's not the original yeah. originator of the. Table. There was a big yeah. outcry about it on Twitter, um, and that's when we were like, well, we'll just republish their story on our site because mm -hmm. they're a black journo too, um, which is great. Um, but another, uh, like on the other side of things, I'll often find story. Like I find a lot of my stories on. Um, Facebook within my networks. And if someone's like written this big, I don't know, a big Facebook post outlining all this stuff that's happened, then I'll call them and I'll be like, where did you get all these details and blah, blah, blah. And then you can write it into your story. Like I'll write into my story, this person um, figured out this happened when they saw X, Y, Z, and then I'll quote them. So, so that their work isn't yeah, missing from the piece. Yeah. yeah. So you're, yeah, you're kind of, they don't have the resources to put it into it, like they don't have, they don't work for a news organisation, mm. but you're taking it and mm -hmm. putting it out there. Yeah, and I think that culture of, of ride-arounds, as they're called, <laughs> that have become very prominent with like large news organisations, like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but <laughs> like the Daily Mail does them a lot and news.com.au does them a lot and lots of other places. And they're just sort of like a rip and read or whatever they call them, where you just take someone else's work and, and you link to them and usually they are linked to as low down as possible as mm -hmm. you can in the story so yeah. that you're not sending people off into other, um, into other places to read and this idea of keeping people on your page as long as you can. And I think, but what you're talking about is even more complicated where you're getting into the area of they're kind of citizen journalists in a way. They're doing all this yeah. work and then they're trying to put it out there to an audience. Well, um, anyone can be a journalist mm. on the internet <laughs> these yeah. days, really. Yeah. Um, but I've had, the, like, I've had my work before um, the Jabberung trees. Um, some, an organization took basically everything that we'd written and put it into a story and then linked to us. But there's some occasions like that, if it was a big exclusive sort of thing, of course you'd be annoyed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if it's something like that, then as long as the word's sort of getting out there, more people, especially coming from the indigenous community, as long as the word is getting out there, then I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, Sammy, I want to talk a little bit about satire mm -hmm. um, and satirical news. And I sent you a link to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, and yeah, I yeah, apologise. Right. No, no, I've heard it before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Revisionist um, history. But yes, the, he, he has that episode on revisionist mm -hmm. history where he kind of blames satirical news kind of um, last week tonight. And I guess there's Patriot, Patriot Act with Hassan mm -hmm. Minaj as well. And there's so many of them now. But this, he was saying sort of this is where a lot of young people are getting their news from and it yeah. blurs the line between fact and fiction mm -hmm. because um, that's what satire does 
quite brilliantly when it's done well. I'm just curious, like coming from a comedy background, what mm -hmm. you think about that and what you think of the role of satire and um, um, obscuring the news. There's a great uh, thing, uh, John Stewart, the, who used to do The Daily Show in America, um, when people used to say, oh, you're really speaking truth to power, and this is in the, in the run-up to the Iraq war. He, um, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I made, I made lots of fun of George Bush, and, and we pointed out all the lies and hypocrisies, but the war happened anyway. And that's been one of the things that people talk about when they talk about the Weimar Republic, which is just before the rise of Nazis in, in Germany in, in that period, in the 1930s which is that there was great satire then as well. People were mocking and ridiculing the Nazi party, but it didn't make a difference in the end. Um, satire tends to get um, over, uh, overpraised or overvalued in its role in society. Uh, it's an important thing to have. It's one of the first thing that, things that gets cut down when, you have, when free speech is taken away. Um, in Pakistan right now, they've just passed a law um, that you cannot anymore mock politicians on television. Um, and that usually tells you the politicians are up to something mm -hmm. when uh, they don't like mockery. Um, and I'm, like, I myself have gotten in trouble in the past for mocking uh, two politicians in Australia, one of whom went on to become prime minister, one of whom almost became prime minister, um, <laughs> which could be any politicians in Australia. But uh, neither of them apparently liked it very much, which you know sucks to be them, but too bad, that's free speech. Um, but uh, we have this thing where we think, oh, well, you spoke truth to power. You know, Tonightly is speaking truth to power. Sean McAuliffe is speaking truth to power. That'll hold politicians to account. It really doesn't, though. Like, it's just um, what it is, it, it has a value in society. We're just not seeing the real value. The real value of good satire is it's the canary in the, in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's usually the satirical comedians who have an insight into where things are going wrong and what we should be paying attention to right now because they will avalanche out of control later. Uh, but we don't do that. We just go, the comedian made fun of the politician, nailed it, mm. and we move on. We think that the politician is now skewered. They're not. They still have the power. The comedian is still the child pointing out that the emperor is naked. You know, it's still just a child. Mm. And, and that's the kind of dichotomy there. The power still lies where it does. Um, we just uh, need to understand why a comedian does what they do and, and, and give them the, the right level of importance, not overvaluing them. I think um, when you say free speech as well, Australia is in kind of an interesting position with that because we don't really have a um, legislated mm -hmm. um, like uh, right to free speech. And I, I mean, we have a section in the paper called Gadfly, which is like a satirical um, column and right. it's meant to be funny. And it is the column that we have to most commonly sent to the lawyers to make sure that we are not going to get sued for defamation. And, but, and, but that happens everywhere, right? So even in America right now, for example, the New York Times took off in a cartoonist because there was the, the cartoons offended some communities. What, part of what happens is um, I did a documentary series on free speech in Australia. It's, uh, it's for Radio National. I'm going to plug it here. It's called Shut Up, um, and it is a five-part documentary series, podcast series. I did for Radio National. You can find it if you go on Earshot. Um, or conversations with Richard Feidler. He released it as well. And um, in that, I spoke to Professor Adrian Stone, who is a constitutional law professor at the University of Melbourne who specializes in free speech. And I asked her, I said, it's not in our constitution. We don't have it as a Bill of Rights in Australia. She said, that's irrelevant. It doesn't actually matter because the law and the courts and everyone 
behave as if we have it there anyway. So right now, it's so normalized an assumption that we, all Australians, do get access to certain kinds of free speech mm -hmm. that the courts and the law will always take that into account, even if we ha don't have it written down as constitutional right. So I think in that way, we have it to a degree. Our issues with free speech are the same that most Western liberal democracies have, which is that is it as equal as we like it to be? Is it as free as we like it to be? Um, you know, are the problem areas political correctness and identity politics, or is it actually defamation laws and and you know, the courts deciding who can and can't publish a story about cardinals and things like that. Mm -hmm. Th those are, that's the debate that we're having right now, which I think is a good debate to be mm -hmm. having. Yeah. Um, Maddie, do you think that Australia's defamation laws undermine the ability of journalists to publish the truth? Um, no, not really, because if it's the truth, then it's not really defamation, <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so there's this idea that fake news is more likely to be shared online by older people. Um, <laughs> um, so, and, and research supports that. Do you think that this issue will become less and less important as young people kind of grow up who have been taught and, um, and encouraged to be more critical about the things yeah, that they Yeah, because about? I think um, a, lot, a lot of young people... We're not, and I'm not saying all old mm. people do it, older people do it. Yeah. Um, Hashtag not all old people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, no, but I think a lot of younger people, because they've grown up with the internet, they know how it works, they can sort of just detect if it's a fake news website or not. Um, even if it's sort of um, a replica site of a, the ABC or something, they'll be able to pick up on the differences and it's just... They just know, <laughs> I guess. And older people don't have that sense because they haven't grown up with technology. They haven't been on it their whole lives. They've, it's a relatively new concept for them. Um, and maybe it's just that younger people's brains are wired differently. I don't know. But I definitely think that as, as time goes on, when the, we've got access to the internet, the new generations go on and on, then I think it'll be easier for them to detect. Mm. I feel like I'm almost overly sceptical now. Like yesterday, there was a story that came up, um, like one of those things that you're targeted at the bottom of a mm -hmm. news story with another one, and it was a, and it linked out to a news.com.au article um, that said that young people are growing like oh, horns on the back of their head. That's right, yes. I think I have um, one. <laughs> <laughs> from, um, so, so the idea is like they're bone spurs that young people are growing because they're spending so much time like this, like looking at their yeah. phones and... It was like it, the mm -hmm. the photo on the article was a um, X ray of someone's head with like a little horn, right? <laughs> like a little teal. Yeah, I was like, I was like, this is fake. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> this cannot be true. <laughs> I read the journal article. I was just, I, this cannot be true. And, and it's crazy because that one is in Washington Post and <laughs> by two Australian researchers based out of you know University of Brisbane. Like yeah. it's a proper study. Yeah. It's really scary. But yeah, same reaction. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And <laughs> we were and all touching each other, back of each other's yeah. heads in SBS office. Like, do we have a horn? Yeah. Are you a Gen Z or a millennial? That's how you check. But that's good that level of skepticism is healthy mm, yeah. you know the, the, and that's what i think some of the younger audience i mean and that's not to say that young people are this wonderful new creature that will never fall for fake news i mean there's the bright barton and the right wing kind of um you know white supremacist websites are all manned by people in their 20s and, and, and things like that as well so there is an ideological issue there that, that's a separate one but overall they know a website that can be trusted from a website that can't be trusted because, like you said, they know how to read yeah. a URL. You know, they'll know that that it's not 
um, you know, the, the web address should conform to yeah. the thing, whereas other people won't look at the web address. They won't look at those things. Or and they'll, they'll do it so it's like, I don't know, instead of BBC, for example, they might put BPC or something. Right. So the average person that's just... And they'll put it, like, they'll put the logo and stuff in the same format mm -hmm. and whatever. So the, an older person who's looking at it just does a quick glance and they don't, like, and younger people can detect these little yeah, things, yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, maybe we're more observant or something. Um, <laughs> oh, <don't laughs> no. <laughs> no, just, like, on the internet. Hi, I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make and play. And we've got ghosts of the internet, new machine learning tools for writers and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including uh, one with one of my favourite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. I, I think it gets into a tricky place. That's okay. Elder people have ranking credits. It balances out, yeah. you know. Just, uh. um, I think it gets into a tricky place with video, though. Like, yeah. I think when you look at YouTube um, and the algorithms there that are serving you videos mm -hmm. at the end, there's a lot of research that, like you quickly go into conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Oh, you watch oh, yeah. one Joe Rogan video and all of a sudden your entire feed is just conspiracy yeah. theories, feminists getting owned by Jordan Peterson and yeah. all of that kind of crazy stuff. Uh, but <laughs> and I think that that affects, that, that does affect young people more because I think that yes. there is that, that rabbit hole kind of thing with YouTube. In the, in the Muslim community, they've, they've been struggling with this for a very long time, which was, um, uh, I did a documentary on... The, uh, on Islam in Australia, and one of the things, this is done like three, four years ago now, one of the problems they were struggling with then was what's called Imam YouTube, which is um, YouTube preachers who radicalize young people. Mm. Because the Imam at the mosque isn't doing that, it's these guys that are, who are online who kind of lead them to ISIS and things. Um, and now we're realizing, especially after Christchurch, that that's been happening to young white men as well you know, this radicalization online. So yes, there is a whole issue there, plus now there's deep fakes and a whole other level of technology being unleashed on the world, um, which kind of changes your levels of understanding of who's saying what on video. Video is no longer either tr trustworthy either. It used to be, um, if you could see it, you could believe it. Yeah. But even that's going now. So, yeah. yeah, I think that, um, yeah, that, that undermining is interesting mm -hmm. because I um, watched Balibo the other night, <laughs> which is, um, I'd seen it before, but I just, it was the only thing on TV. But it, the, the kind of, um, the feeling of the journalists who were there that they wanted to film the thing, because they wanted to win and they wanted to so be the one that... Have you not seen it? I have it? no oh, idea what okay. you're talking about. So <laughs> it's, it's like, it's this... It's this oh, you're Australian, right, right, yeah, cool. Sorry, I'm not the only sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's this Australian film about um, these five journalists that were killed in in um, in Balibo, like, during the Indonesian invasion of Timor-Leste. Okay. Um, and there, there was Channel 9 and Channel 7. I think the ABC was there as well, but they they left when they got told to leave. So, um, and they went to try and film the invasion because they wanted to film the, the soldiers getting off the boat mm -hmm. and running up the hill because they knew if they had the footage, then people had to believe them. Mm -hmm. um, and... There were a whole lot of other things. There was a lot of competitiveness between the networks and they wanted to be the journalists that got the story and there was ego, but they actually ended up dying because they stayed so long 
and the fighting sort of came to the town that mm -hmm. they were in. Um, and I think that that desire that they had is one that is quite central to journalism. You want to show the thing because you think that if people will see it, they have to believe you and they have to do something. They yeah. can't ignore it if yeah. they see but it. But even that's been, and his, his interesting thing is that's actually been faked for so long as well. So mm -hmm. if you look at the history of like newspapers, like one of the, the probably the first newspaper baron worth remembering was William Randolph first. Um, who was, you know, um, who, uh, they made a character like him in Citizen Kane. That's what that's about. And William Randolph Hearst's whole thing was when he said, if I want there to be a war, I will create a war. And he created wars. Like, you know, the part of the lead up to um, the Spanish-American War was, you know, just articles that he published that were nonsense, that weren't real. Um, he just published articles saying this is what's happening, this is what's happening, and the credible public believed him. Um, and we've kind of seen that throughout history, is that newspaper barons and newspaper owners and television owners have kind of shaped reality to conform to what they want, which means, you know, just because the, the journalists say it's true doesn't mean it's true. And that lack of credibility has been there throughout. We just are only now calling into question. Unfortunately, we're throwing the good ones under the same bus that we're throwing the bad ones under. But that's, you know, that... Uh, I don't know how to fix that problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of have an example of this. Um, the I don't know if you if you guys remember the story of the Tennant Creek two-year-old who was raped in Tennant Creek. Mm -hmm. um, when that story came out, it was obviously horrible. Um, but no one ever spoke to the family about it. So they were telling one side of the story, which was um, elements of it was true, but. The other side of things, they really demonised the child's mother um, and no one, yeah, she hadn't told her side of the story, but she actually came to me and wanted me to tell it. And it was really difficult because all of the, it was still going through court and everything, so there was legal restrictions on how we could tell it. But you wanted, uh, it was like one of those situations where you want to use, you have to use video to tell a story. Um, and we couldn't show her face, mm -hmm. and we had to distort her voice and all of this stuff. So I think there is this... Uh, so, she, you know, she said her piece, and you can go look it up online if you want. But um, there's, in that sense, it was very difficult to be able to tell her story with all those, um, like, things in place. Those filters. Yeah, like... And the in the end, though, it actually turned out really nice because there's a... Like, well, not nice, but... Um, fine because we could use music and other things as well mm. to tell that story so I think when even in situations when you can't really use video there is ways around it to put more of an impact onto a story mm. yeah and I think even to convince someone to let you film them even with those filters like that's such an achievement to get someone in front of a camera I think when it's such yeah. a personal story well, as well yeah um I just want to flag that we will be taking questions. Um, so if anything pops into your mind that you want to ask, there will be someone with a microphone, I think. Um, but I wanted to kind of finish on the idea of regulation. And there's this um, kind of push at the moment to try and regulate social media mm -hmm. in order to stop the spread of, of fake news or deep fakes, which are kind of these videos that... Um, that use AI to create fake faces of people so it looks like a politician is saying something that they're not really saying. Um, and, you know, and also very kind of extremist sites within, within Facebook and Twitter and, and others. I just wonder if you think that, one, that's even possible, 
um, to regulate and to whether it will go, there's a risk of it going too far. I think that if, if there will be important conversations that are shut down because of regulation that is more of a blunt tool I than... I think it won't, um, even if social media could get rid of all fake news, there will still be blogs. Like, you can't stop it. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be, ev like, anywhere anyway. Everyone's entitled to an opinion as well, so um, I guess even if it's, like, on Twitter, writing stuff, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a fake news article. Like, it can just be people <laughs> saying things online. Um, I don't think we'll ever be able to get rid of it. Yeah, I think that, that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I, I also don't trust government regulation of certain things, yeah. which is particular things that kind of sort of have to do with free speech a lot because we, law is, and we have to understand this, the law is a hammer, it's not a scalpel. It can't go in and surgically cut out the websites that you dislike and keep the websites that you yeah. like because that's only dependent upon who's in government. Um, the next government could be, ten, you know, 10 years from now, Pauline Hanson could win um, or Mark Nathan could God. become prime minister. <laughs> These things happen. And, and, and you know, I, I was in Pakistan when I was uh, very, very young, and there was the worst guy that should ever become prime minister was Asif Ali Zardari. Mm. And in the 1990s, someone said, if someone had said Zardari will one day become prime minister, we'd be like, yeah, right. And then 20 years later, he was. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's politics. Is 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 sometimes things happen which you can't, which you can't, but should predict. And um, and what Pauline Hanson deems valuable to the public in terms of internet access will be very different from what uh, Richard Natali might deem or, or Anthony Albanese. And, and, and she will have her supporters and, and, and it's that kind of a thing. The way I like to think of the internet is, it, because now it is a human right. It's in the it's, you know, United Nations Bill of Charter, char, you know, Bill of Rights. Uh, it, free access to the internet is there as well. And um, one of the things we have to consider is, all right, let's say you don't like your neighbor's point of view. Your yeah. neighbor is doing stuff that, he's, that you disagree with. He is a de deplorable human being uh, who has very racist points of view. Can you tell the electricity company to shut the electricity to his house to punish him for that? No. The same way you can't tell Facebook to take his website off because it is also his right to have access to that website. And it may seem enticing to say, hey, you know, let's cut his website access off, that way he can't put his filth on the internet. But 20 years from now, when he comes to power, your website will get cut off. And the laws you put in place to help the, your side now will be used against you later. So it's better to let all sides have access to the internet and have a sense of personal responsibility as to what we, what we consume than to let government do it for us, because that never leads to a good outcome. I think another thing that could be useful in the future is if maybe they taught even in school um, yeah. how to detect fake news. Um, That's a very, How very to fact-check yeah. claims, how to, you know, research, I guess. Yeah. I think they do. In I, one of our, um, my colleagues has a child, and <laughs> she was saying that... Um, one of those, yeah. <laughs> One of them. Um, but it was saying that the kid was learning about being a critical oh, wow. newsreader in yeah. primary school. Um, we used to have that. We used to have the thing of, like, if you wanted to do a research paper, cite your sources. Mm -hmm. This was, and I'm not talking about, like, university. I'm talking about in high school and middle school. Cite your sources, or, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, for example. One of those things which you knew the information there was vetted correctly. Um, we've kind of lost that now. It, it, you know, you can, if you're presenting a point of view, you can do so without your sourcing. And there's so many sources anyway, what can you say? Wikipedia isn't reliable anymore. You know, those, there's those issues. It's a changing landscape and who knows where it'll end up. Okay. 
Okay, well, on that note, um, Encyclopedia Britannica, mm -hmm. please read it. Um, and <laughs> yeah, came back to that. Um, but if anyone has any questions, please, we've got some microphones. Um, ask away. Um, um, hi, I'm talking a lot about free speech. Um, I was just wondering how you kind of sort of navigate the parameters between when free speech goes beyond just fake news but kind of enters a territory of hate speech and what, I don't know, I guess what that looks like and what the difference is really and how you can go about the consumption in, in the best way possible. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Or. No. Yeah. Don't look at me. I think from the point of view of that we, I guess on the not mm -hmm. kind of creating laws that you don't want to... Well, Okay, so every country has their limits on free speech. Some of them have more restrictive ones than others, but it is one of the only freedoms that is defined by its limits. Um, hate speech is something that, yes, we grapple with, but one of the things that we've all decided, for example, collectively, and that's America, and that's Australia, and that's everyone, is incitement to violence is not something you can allow when it comes to free speech. So I can stand up and say, um, you know, I hate X, and that's fine, as long as I say, and now let's go out and kill X, right? Or hurt X or maim X. So the, the, the boundary goes from hate speech, the problem starts when it goes from hate speech to incitement to violence. Hate speech itself, what is and isn't hate speech, is almost, in some cases, in the eye of the beholder. It, you know, it might seem clear-cut in examples of racism, for example. But on, it, there's other examples where um, I am, I'm an ex-Muslim, right? So I'm an atheist, which means I'm basically, like many people are atheists, it's not a big deal. But if you are a religious conservative Muslim, then you will believe certain things in the Quran that are very violent against me. Um, and, and now, are you, by practicing your religion, just by practicing your religion, practicing hate speech against me because I might feel vilified by that or oppressed? Not necessarily, because we also have freedom of religion. Uh, but am I okay to, uh, you know, am I valid in my fears and, and paranoia? Absolutely. So that's there as well. The problem will come when hate speech goes from that into you know, the violent speech and, and those areas. Um, and it comes down to the same thing, you know, what, what, what offends one person is another person's free right to say that. Um, there's that really awkward quote by Supreme Court judge for America once, which was the right to swing your fist ends, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Um, and it's the same thing with free speech, I think, and hate speech. I think also um, just making sure whatever you're reading or consuming is unbiased, like they're telling two sides of the story so there's you know, the person making this claim and then sort of a reaction from someone else who's on the opposite mm -hmm. scale. So you can read both and decide which way you want to go as well. That's important. I think on the incitement to violence thing, it's quite interesting. Mm. I mean, I don't know if either of you have experienced this, but um, obviously being on Twitter, there are a lot of oh, horrible people saying horrible things. Right. Um, but a few years ago, I was doxxed. So my, oh, really? my home address was put on the internet and my phone number. Um, and I was kind of shocked of how little you can do about it. Like, there's very little that the police can do. Um, and I was just very surprised and thought that there was more um, kind of in place to support you if you wanted to kind of, if you did feel that there was a threat of violence against you or, or there was the threat that that might happen. Um, and that's and that's the police literally not catching up to the modern world. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's been around for ages now, doxing and all those things. They just the cybercrimes units and everything just don't have the resources. 
because it's not taken seriously, but it's a very serious issue. Yeah, yeah and the amount of times that happens, and I think there are a lot of journalists who um, their news organisations have had to pay for security because um, there is no mm -hmm. um, sort of support by the law to protect them if they are doing a story about someone quite powerful or someone, um, I, and this happens all around the world as well, but I just, it, it, it surprised me how little there was in the way of protections, mm -hmm. um, which maybe it probably shouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we have another question? Hi, um, I've got a, a comment and a question on um, kind of constructed fake news, which is like um, stuff that are actually constructed and we believe they're real. And I'll give you an example. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, there was the Syrian gas thing where they, there was like the gas Syria and then there was the also the ISIS videos of the decapitation of like the Egyptians and then also the burning of the pilot, right? And then so these are actually put into very reliable sources that release them, like CNN and BBC, and we watch them. And then they've got such a gripping human angle, and they're on real news sites that are trustable. You can source them. So my question is, how do, you, how do we go approaching these without going, like, super, like, conspiracy theory and, like, just critical and not believing anything? So what are, you, what are your comments about this? I think there's a solution. I think that's the, it, it's an old problem. It's not even to do with social media. Um, if you look at, and this isn't, again, like everything, the problem is everything sounds like conspiracy theory once you go down this road, but a large part of it is like discernible fact and, and, and recorded fact. So uh, Operation Ajax, which is when uh, the CIA overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh's government in Iran. Um, that entire thing was kind of orchestrated by just like two CIA agents on the ground. And one of the things they did was they went to certain newspapers, bribed the newspaper editors to put fake stories in that would make Mossadegh seem weak and also paid rioters to go out and riot. Um, that's something that happened in the 1950s. This stuff has been going on for such a long time um, where you know it doesn't matter. Intelligence agencies use newspapers and these kind of things to um, seed certain stories in to get a certain desired effect because they realize the value of fake news a long time ago. Um, th is there a solution to that? Not really, and, and that's what sucks is because Depending on your ideology, you either believe that, that you know Assad gas attack was real, or it was fake, um, and and you know sarin gas was used, or it wasn't used, and you will find people on both sides who have verifiable facts that point to the truth in either way. Um, at some point, you just have to kind of throw your hands up and go, yes, there is a great deal of stuff out there which is not verifiable as a truth, or I just can't trust it. It's unfortunate. I don't know what to do about that because. You know, you've got people who believe the moon landing was faked, for example, and they've got legitimate news sources that kind of verify that because they watched a documentary once about how Stanley Kubrick did a fake news moon landing. Um, there, there is, up to a certain point, you can argue with people. We've always lived in consensus reality. It's not an objective reality. I think we just have, are now waking up to that, unfortunately. Um, it seems like a rude shock because a lot of us weren't paying attention, you know. I think also that journalists and news organisations get into a um, tricky situation when they start becoming predictive. Like they try and um, get out in front of a story or have the most definitive version mm -hmm. of a story. And I think especially when you're reporting from a war zone, you have so little information that is verified. You have basically you're a journalist with very few connections. You're on the ground and you're trying to pull together information. Um, and you'd probably file that story and it would get put up and given a headline and a treatment um, that you didn't put on it. 
that wants to make it seem like more the, the, the version of the story. Um, and I think with that, with that story in particular, there would have been, this is what seems to have happened. And if you were only reporting the facts that you know and not trying to become predictive or not trying to get out in front, um, you wouldn't have made a call on what was used, who did it, what happened. Um, and those are the things that you're trying to pull together. But I, I think that um, like waiting a little bit isn't the worst thing in the world and only reporting what you do know and not trying to get into a predictive space where you're trying to get one step ahead of the story or, or one step ahead of the facts that you actually have. Yep. Um, we do that as well at NITV. Like a story will come out in mainstream media um, but until we can actually talk to the community, we often mm. don't publish anything. And that could be a couple of days later or something like that, but at least we know we're being balanced and we have both sides of the story, especially from a community perspective as well. I think we might have time for one more question. Sorry, our timer has paused. Yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe just last question. Um, thank you, what a privilege. <laughs> so I'm a scientist and, and one of the one of the devastating things that's happened for our community over the past 20 years is that our, uh, our authority as, as bearers of truth has collapsed on both sides of politics with, um, I think we can certainly see, especially in the case of climate change, absolutely devastating results. Um, and also, for example, in the anti-vaxxer community. How did we get it so wrong? And what can we do to, to correct this through the media? Uh, you can go first. Problem. Yeah. Um, there's a great uh, uh, thing. The, uh, last week tonight, which is John Oliver's show on HBO, um, he made a really good point when he came to climate change, in fact, which is if you're going to do that nonsense of, oh, both sides of the story, if we have a climate change scientist on, we have to have a climate change denier on. He's like, then make sure you reflect the actual consensus numbers because science does rely on consensus to a certain degree, and, and it's a very valuable tool within scientific discourse. And so if you're going to have a climate change denier on, then make sure there's 100 climate change uh, um, scientists on to counter that one idiot's point of view. Um, there was recently a, Alan Jones had one, because the, the Q&A did a panel, which was the right way of doing it. Instead of pitting um, uh, Brian Cox against Malcolm Roberts, they put a whole panel of just scientists on to talk about climate change. And there was a very intellectual, proper discussion by qualified people. You could look at that and go, these are experts. And one of them said, Alan Jones is wrong. He isn't a scientist. I am a scientist, which is a very valid criticism. Alan Jones took umbrage to that and had a scientist on his show who's a climate change denier. And that man has scientific credentials, but it takes 30 seconds online to find out that that man also believes dowsing is a good way of finding water. Mm -hmm. So, and he's written papers on that and been discredited by that, for that. Um, and so th th there is that thing where at some point we have to learn the value of experts. Experts have never been discredited. Politics have discredited experts. And I think that the difference is we're listening to the politicians, not the experts. So maybe the answer then is to disregard politicians. I never, I never understand Australia's respect for politicians. It boggles yeah. my mind. Um, I, I'm from Pakistan. We know the idiots. We know the self-serving scum who will completely debase themselves for the lowest common denominator as long as it gets them to power. And that doesn't matter which side of politics you're from, right or left, they're all equally narcissistic, sociopathic losers. Um, but we, for some reason in Australia, we seem to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're not worthy of that. They've never earned that. They should never get that. I think it's um, it's more than benefit of the doubt. Yeah. People just will take because they're their word you know, is they're gospel. put they're put up on a pedestal as well. So people take yeah, take their word for what it is yeah. when they 
don't have any any qualifications whatsoever when it comes to climate change or any kind of Indeed. science. Um, just because they're the minister for energy or you know the environment or whatever yeah. doesn't mean that they're an expert in that field. It means that they've been given that to manage. One month so ago, he was the minister of sports. Now he's the minister for environment. All of a sudden, we're supposed to believe this idiot has the same qualifications in sports that he had in environment, which are that he had none. And it, it's, <laughs> it's a weird cultural phenomenon. I do not get this, this respect for politicians that Australians consistently uh, insist on having. But yeah. I, think, I think also journalists need to do their job better and yeah. not, uh, not necessarily not give climate change deniers a voice because everyone's entitled to their point of view, I believe that. But I think that they need to be researching better, they need to be <laughs> using more scientists in their stories or whatever they're doing, then, yeah. yeah. I think um, on climate change it's particularly interesting as well because um, I think scientists are at a disadvantage because of the way that science works, the way that it is open to the possibility that it may be wrong and it tries yeah. to get less and less wrong, um, but you are always open to new information. And I think that climate sceptics are at, at a position of advantage because they are absolute. They will not budge. Mm. They are, and the media kind of likes that. The media yeah. likes a strong statement. And us not being open to people who approach the world as trying to learn more and get more correct and get better understanding. Like, what a beautiful way to approach the world. Um, but the fact that the media doesn't respond to that, I think, is a huge failing of the media, that we don't um, support scientists and, and, and also try and develop them as sources. I think I I'm very much guilty of this. You call a university and you ask for someone who's an expert in a topic and then you get a quote from them and you hang up and you never call them until you do another story on that topic. But you're not developing them as a source and you're not giving them a chance to get better at expressing what they want to say. And you know, Whereas most, most, most news editors and journalists would fall over themselves to have a, uh, a working relationship with a politician. Mm. You know? mm. um, the amount of people I've seen who are senior journalists across all the different media who will have lunch with a politician or dinner with a politician versus a scientist. Mm. It's shocking, the numbers. Yeah. It's a very bizarre thing, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and I also think the, the fact that, that climate change um, skepticism was funded at such a huge level, um, especially in the US, over decades. Like, I think we're seeing in the last few years this, this sort of battle between skeptics and, and scientists mm -hmm. that has the, the tale runs to you know the 50s and 60s and 70s in the US and the amount of money that was poured into creating um, academic research that would support skepticism is is crazy to me. So I think that there's you know it seems like um, it's sort of this fight that's just emerged, but the, you're, you're up against a very well moneyed um, machine. So I wish you luck. <laughs> um, I think that might be all the yeah. time we have. Do we have any final thoughts? Truth, lies, <laughs> deep no. fakes, the internet? Um, we, we always said journalists to vet their sources. I think as consumers, we have to do that as well. Mm. I think that's a major part of our responsibility. Freedom of speech, freedom of press, these things are great for the journalists and for the people speaking out, but it's also for us individually to kind of practice, which we're very happy to abrogate responsibility um, because it's too much work otherwise. Yep, yeah. fact check everything yeah. is what I would say. That's my piece of advice. That's very good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maddie and Sammy. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. Thanks for listening here as well. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together 
by our brilliant program producer, Lin Nguyen. And the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Yusuf. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches.